I think a huge part of this has to do with the enormous choice that listeners have, right? Depending on who you listen to and how you count, there's anywhere between 2 million and 4 million podcast series as of 2021. And there are tens of millions of episodes out there. And so listeners have never had more choice. (laughs) They can spend their time listening to nearly anything that they want to. And given that huge amount of choice, I think the question for creators becomes, how do I cut through the clutter? How do I stand out from the crowd? How do I make something that is really going to capture people's time and attention and earn their time and attention? That's Dan Meisner. He's been the broadcaster in residence at RTA for the past two years and is the director of audience development at Pacific Content, a company that works with brands to make original podcasts. This episode, we're talking about something Dan knows a lot about. We're covering podcast packaging and, like the title suggests, finding your niche and using these aspects of the medium to your advantage. As Dan was saying, there's a podcast for everything, from web development to dating shows to friends talking about the latest in hurling. If you've had an idea for a series rolling around in your brain, chances are there's already a show just like it. And that's not a bad thing. The beauty of podcasting lies in its ability to cater to and give voice to really unique and sometimes small communities. I'm Sam McNulty, and this episode, we're featuring the work of a few students who have recognized what they uniquely offer and have made a project relevant to their own capabilities and experiences. From the epic journey of the Canadian curling team to very different experiences of immigrant sisters to dismantling toxic masculinity in Star Wars, we've got a wide range of projects for you to listen to and some really talented students to meet along the way. Listening to Bounced, an RTA School of Media Student Showcase podcast. So let's start off with one of the questions we came here to answer. Why is finding your niche so important in podcasting? If you think about the relationship between a podcast creator and a listener, it's a transaction. You are asking listeners for perhaps the most precious resource that they have, which is their time and their attention. Your listeners had better get something in return for that time and attention that they've chosen to give to you. And so one really great way to have a compelling pitch to the listener One really great way to make a solid promise to the listener is to start by asking, what can I offer them that nobody else can offer them? What is the show that I can make that nobody else could make, even if 
they really wanted to? What's you know proprietary? And again, it could be a point of view. It could be access to guests. It could be a personal story that you're the only person on the planet who's qualified to tell. I don't know what that is, but I think at the end of the day, this is all about cutting through the clutter and making sure that your show has the best possible chance of standing out from the crowd. How can we really find a niche? Can you walk us through some approaches? I know you suggested that sometimes it's the guests that you have, something that you're obsessed with. Yeah. Um, What are some approaches that people can take? So I'm a huge advocate for doing your research ahead of time. And very, very often somebody will come to me and say, I want to make a show about movies, or I want to make a show about cooking, or I want to make a show about my favorite kinds of music. And I think before you start to design your show and before you start to plan out your guests and your episodes and your topics and all of that, it really makes a lot of sense to survey the landscape and start by listening. Look for other shows that are doing similar things to you, right? What's already out there? How are the kinds of listeners that you want to reach already being served by other shows? You know, by doing that sort of survey of the landscape, by understanding what shows other people and other networks are already making, that can help you identify your unique take or your unique format or your unique promise to a listener. And so, my my biggest and maybe strongest recommendation is don't make a show that already exists don't do your version of somebody else's existing show the only way you can avoid duplicating other people's work or creating a show that offers the same thing that lots of other shows offer is by listening first what are other common mistakes that you notice within that development process so I think as audio producers and as fans of podcasting and audio as a medium, we tend to focus almost exclusively on the sound of our shows, right? Did we get a good sounding recording from Skype or Zencaster or any other tool? Is the music at the right level? Are we using sound effects? What microphone should we buy? We spend so much time thinking about the audio quality of our shows and the mixing and the editing. And we're audio people and we tend to focus on audio. That makes all <laughs> kinds of sense. Like, totally get it. <laughs> One of the things that I find is so often overlooked is everything that isn't the audio file. And so the way that I tend to talk about this is in terms of product packaging, right? If you make a podcast series, yes, it's a collection of audio files, but long before anybody spends a single second listening to your show, they will have already formed an impression of it based on things that they consume with their eyes, right? So I'm thinking here about the visual identity of your show. And how that appears inside podcast apps, how that appears in Google search results, and how it appears in lots of different places on social, 
during a promoted post. So what does the artwork for your show look like? And what is that trying to convey? in terms of quality, in terms of tone, in terms of format, you know, what are the visuals that are associated with your show? What are they telling a listener? And then I think about some of the text or the copy elements, right? What is the name of your show? What are the titles of your episodes? What are the descriptions of the episodes, right? All of this text that appears inside podcast apps. And then we can think about things that most people don't necessarily think of as product packaging elements, but are really important. Things like how often do your new episodes come out? Do you release new episodes every single week? Do you put an episode out every single month? Do you release six episodes and then take a break for five months? So Mm -hmm. your release cadence is a big part of that and the actual duration of your episodes, right? Are you making 10-minute episodes? Are you making 40-minute episodes? Or are you Dan Carlin and making four-hour episodes of (laughs) Hardcore History. And so I don't necessarily want to call this a mistake, but I think that those product packaging elements, the artwork, the copy, the metadata, the duration, the release cadence, all of those things are going to inform somebody's impression of your show long before they've ever heard a single second of it. Right. And so what I want for, for all podcast creators is for the packaging of their show, all of these elements that are kind of on the outside to be a really good, accurate and enticing reflection of what's on the inside, because whether we like it or not, people tend to consume podcasts with their eyes before they ever consume podcasts with their ears. People don't look at the title in isolation. They don't look at the artwork in isolation. They don't look at the category in Apple Podcasts in isolation. They don't look at the duration of an episode in isolation. They look at all of these things together and then they make a decision to do the thing that every podcaster wants them to do, which is hit the play button. When it comes to podcast packaging and finding your niche, it's important to note that these are not unrelated elements or processes from one another. Like Dan was saying, all of this work leads up to your audience's decision to actually listen. Finding your niche isn't about fitting into a mold to reach your target audience, but instead it's a way to take up space and stand out in your category. So far, we've discussed artwork, descriptions, release cadence, and other aspects of your podcast but there are a few other ways to use your niche to package your work and attract listeners. In a similar way that we use our artwork to visually market our work, we can use the content inside of our episodes to signal to our audience and differentiate ourselves from other podcasts in the same category. In my day job, I work at a company called Pacific Content and we work with brands to make original podcasts. And uh, a little while ago, we started working with an automotive manufacturer, a company called Ford Motor Company. And they were launching a show all about the rebirth of the Ford Bronco, which is a vehicle that was born in the 1960s and then had this very interesting history. And then in the 1990s, they completely stopped manufacturing it and now it's back. And so they wanted to tell the story of sort of the the birth and death and rebirth of, of the Ford Bronco. And to do that, we started by listening to a bunch of automotive podcasts. And what we found was that an awful lot of those shows were 
two guys in a garage talking about gearhead type stuff, right? <laughs> it, it was it was kind of stereotypical uh, motorhead gearhead, uh, you know, garage Deep talk. Brown. Yeah, and and so we looked at that and we said, how are we going to make a show that appeals to automotive enthusiasts, but is going to stand out from the crowd and not be yet another two dudes in a garage talking about cars kind of show. And so what we ended up doing is counter-programming <laughs> by putting together an eight-part documentary series, which is effectively an audio road trip, where Sonari Glinton, who's the host of the show, goes on this huge sort of cross-country journey to understand why did Ford kill the Bronco? Why did they decide to bring it back? And they meet a whole bunch of people through archival materials and some of the principals who are still around. And it's almost the opposite of two dudes in a garage. It's one person on a mission to uncover a mystery of why this company killed and then brought back the vehicle. And it sounds like a documentary because it is a documentary. And so, you know, I think that idea of counter programming, it can be very, very effective, especially when what you're trying to do is cut through the clutter and offer something that is distinct and is highly differentiated. Because there's no shortage of two dudes in a garage podcasts. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure the world needs, you know, yet another one. This method of counterprogramming the content of your podcast isn't just a technique used by professional podcasting companies. It's also being used by students and newcomers to the medium. Take, for example, this fantastic opening by Haley Thompson for her podcast, Not Two Guys Talking About Star Wars. This is a Star Wars podcast. Yeah, the sequels aren't gay. Ray is such a Mary The suit. Last Jedi is literally it's not feminist propaganda. You're just not a real fan. Yeah. Okay, SG In my opinion. Personally, I think. Play devil's advocate. No, 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 no. This is not two guys talking about Star Wars, hosted by Haley Thompson. I love this opening clip because it tells us exactly what this project is about, who is it for, and the tone of her series, and how her podcast is different from others in the space. She even did something really clever with her opening in that she actually went to the comment section of a video about her favorite fandom, Star Wars, and used misogynistic quotes that were said by other male fans. I thought this was so powerful because in the way that these comments are used to ward off women and non-cis men from being a part of fandoms, Haley used these quotes to ward off unwelcome listeners and signal to the ones that she wants that this is a safe space for them. And all of this happened within the first minute of her podcast. One of the things I think an awful lot about is uh, what I call first minute retention or first minute mm -hmm. effectiveness. And over the past couple of years, listening apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify have started to give individual creators much more information about how listeners interact with their shows and how long they're listening and where they're dropping off. And one of the things that we see time and time again is that the sharpest drop-off in listeners within an episode usually happens within the first 30, 60, 90 seconds, right? 
everybody or nearly everyone starts podcasts by hitting play and starting at the very beginning, minute zero, second zero. And so if they're going to bail, they're probably going to bail within the first minute or so. And so, you know, in a linear, linear medium, like, you know, audio storytelling, I think that first minute and really articulating what the benefit of the show is, what the tone of the show is, why you should keep listening. It's so, so important because we know that if we've got you for the first 60 or 90 seconds, if you've made it that far, odds are you're going to stick around for all or most of the episode. How do we get people to as early on in the episode as we can make the decision that they should stick with this episode, right? What are we going to do? What is the question that we're going to raise? What is the story that we're going to tease? What is the storyline that we're going to start and leave on a cliffhanger that's going to keep people and hold their attention throughout the entire episode? Not in a clickbaity kind of way. I don't know if there's an audio equivalent of clickbaity, but in a way that really plays to the strengths of audio as a medium, which is you know storytelling and emotion. And I think if you can nail that first minute effectiveness and really clearly sell the benefit of the show, not just what it is, but why someone should listen, then you're off to a great start. You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to Bounced. While listening to new podcasts or shows, I have a process of previewing the episode to decide whether or not I'm going to listen. And what I do is I start skipping through the episode to find something ear-catching. Not eye-catching, but ear-catching. Something that grabs my attention and makes me go, hey, I think I want to listen to this. I want to commit my time to this podcast. And a show that I find extremely ear-catching is Thomas West's podcast, On the Button. When I first listened to this podcast, I really didn't know what to expect. I'm not a sparts person, and more specifically, I wouldn't call myself a curling person, which is what Thomas's podcast is all about. The thing is, Thomas did something that not a lot of interview-based sports podcasts do, in that he tried to tell a really vivid and detailed story of the sport he was passionate about, and a game that was really pivotal for this Canadian curling team. Okay, I want to get into the Roar of the Rings tournament before because this was uh, a massive moment for you guys, I believe, as it was uh, the moment where you guys were able to qualify for the Olympics. Both teams are thrown down here, but you hear both teams are thrown down to Ryan Fry's throw because he knows Ryan Fry's release better than he does the other teams. Same as you! Final stone looking for a couple here. The Hardin brothers backing right off now. Clean, clean, clean. He could use clean. a little inside roll if he's got it. Now he'll sit right there. That'll be enough for the two. We've had a lot of success, and if we can beat them, then maybe we can get on a roll. And that was, that was, I think, a big, big start for us was playing a team that we knew being able to beat many times in a row. So, yeah, we played loose. We played confident. We played aggressive. And we played extremely well throughout the event. So that was obviously, I think, a big boost for us as playing Jeff for our first game. The reigning Canadian champions 
When you look at some of the other teams here with all that experience, the likes of Stoughton and Howard and Cooey, they got themselves into a lot of trouble with some of their strategy. They have it. They have the strategy and they also have the hit game. You can't win this without drawing, of course, but they are one of the best teams maybe ever at the takeouts. And not just simple takeouts, the runbacks as well. They've given up the fewest points per game on average, never gave up more than a deuce. That's partly strategy. Going back to that game, <laughs> I kind of knew after the ninth end when Brad made that double that the game was over unless something drastically went wrong. So I think that's a, a shot that I'll never forget because I don't know why they ever left him that because at that point, Brad was just making everything, and that's in his wheelhouse. Draw here, pretty precise though, right? What, the hit? No, the draw to here or else we're just leaving. I don't think he'll throw that double if we're here. Yeah, I think that's where we're going. Right here. It's a better result than the hit anyway, because then he's got a freebie one. We go right here. He's not throwing, like, unless we're right here, he's not throwing this double. He's taking his one. Right there. Hey, SWAT. Right here. You think so, too? Or the hit one. Like, even here, he, he's not throwing that double, because... man. It's, why would you throw the double when you're up one? Well, yeah, nothing's going wrong if you're a little deep. Okay. Can you bite the four? Yeah, but, we, you know, we just don't want to be, we just don't want to be on the T-line. Okay. Eh? Most teams would come or half around that one, but if you shot. leave it open, there's a simple double. And if you come half around, you might line up the raise double. Yeah. Maybe bite the four. Uh, you had to go for it. John's we missed a great it. Point. That's great. That's okay because we still have control of the game. But that was that was the shot to win the trials, and um, I just remember celebrating and all the emotion coming out. And at that point, I I, I knew we were going to the Olympics, but. Hopefully something drastically didn't go wrong. After to give up a single, they'd still have the hammer coming home. It was uh, John Morris, the gamble now. I didn't think he'd hit, but... Still the surprise. Yeah, well, it's because like Ryan said, you know, that was, um, that sealed the deal right there. And I remember that spot on that particular spot on the sheet had to be really careful because earlier in the game, it was... Uh, fifth end we were throwing just a, a lightweight hit down that spot and we ended up jamming it and um kind of looking foolish brad throws it as clean as anybody there's a lot of rotation which make it might make it run even straighter he's got great brushers you cannot overthrow it they could ever Double. get to the inside here Double. wow Almost hot, Ryan. Whoa! Whoa! Guys. Jacob's in his last, and nothing from the brothers Harden. Anything? Yeah. Curl up! Come on! Uh-oh. There is your get out of jail. Isn't that something? Come on. Wow. Just didn't pick that spot up. Just ran, eh? Yeah. Threw it perfect. He did, yeah. <laughs> And I remember thinking to myself, I, I don't think I threw that uh, particularly that bad. I thought I threw it pretty good and the weight was pretty close, but it just ran really, really straight. So um, sometimes you got to miss shots earlier on to be able to make the ones that really count and matter uh, later in the game. And that was a really good, I'm almost thankful that we had missed that shot earlier because we, I knew how to throw it down that spot uh, come, you know, the time that it really mattered. So I remember letting it go and, 
and just you couldn't be wide. You could, if anything, you could be a little bit tight and a little bit soft. And that's exactly how I threw it. And Straight spot here. You got to be careful not to jam it. Final stone trying to make the double. Put a lock on it. Harnish called off. Fry calling line. And Curling's version of the, the Big Bang Theory. That's yeah, it's just an amazing thing because it's so hard to get to the Olympics in Canada uh, because it's so hard. You have a, such a deep field and you just never know that if you're going to get back or not. So, yeah, it's just an amazing feeling and something I'll never forget. Feather day, although something bad could happen, but not with this speed. Brad Jacobs from Sault Ste. Marie. They are the Canadian champions. They are now Olympians. I remember just kind of thinking to myself, like, I can't believe this. And it had, it certainly hadn't sunk in. It was, it felt like a really short time between when we had won the Briar, and it was. And we were on the top of that podium, and now, you know, however many months later, we're on top of that podium, and we're going to the Olympics. And it was, uh, yeah, it's just, what can I say, man? It was special. It's a dream come true. Wearing the maple leaf, rep you know, the, having the opportunity to represent your country, and you know, doing it with these guys was just, it was, uh, it was a really special moment. And to be able to take, you know, Tom Coulterman, our coach, he had been coaching for so many years in the sport of curling, starting with his daughter. And Tom is a legend in his own right, you know, on the coaching side of things. He's been involved for many years and still is today. He coaches the, uh, the university here in town. So to have Tom with us and, and Caleb, who had been a, a lifelong friend, especially of EJ's was, was a dream come true. With the momentum of the Roar of the Rings tournament on their side, Team Jacobs would go on to win the gold medal in Sochi, Russia, which would be Canada's third gold medal in a row at the Olympics. So they were able to continue the legacy of Canada at the Olympics, but in 2018, with the Americans winning, the gold medal won by Team Jacobs is the last time Canada has won a gold medal in curling at the Olympics. That was On the Button by Thomas West. Now, while I could talk forever about what I admire about this podcast, I think it's best if you hear from the person who actually created it. We've got Thomas with us to tell the story behind making this podcast and where the idea for it came from. I have uh, a couple cousins who are famous curlers. They won the, the gold medal in Sochi, Russia. And they're like third cousins. And I'm related to, to Brad Jacobs, who is one of the people on the podcast. So that's kind of what got me into curling. And watching curling growing up and, and watching my cousins curl, 
that was always uh, a really cool thing for me. So that was kind of the the inspiration behind the podcast. And then uh, when I got to this class and, and we got to do the podcast, I was pretty happy that this is what we got to do. So the, the podcast actually turned out pretty much exactly how I envisioned it. The big thing in this podcast is I wanted to have a strong mix of talking in an interview and having actual audio clips from from live or things that that happened live at one point like the the commentator calls and the sound of the arena in a curling rink because i think with curling you know with hockey and stuff you have the fans cheering and all that and you know that has a, a its own unique sound to it if you have a soccer game that has you know its own unique sound to it and and curling is no different and you know I'm not going to sit here and pretend like curling is, you know, seen to be the most exciting thing in the world, but it does have a very unique um, sound and, and w- with the commentators talking and the way they talk and the, the sound of, of the broom on, on the ice and the curlers yelling. These are all things that I think are, are very unique to the sport. And for people like me who are really into curling, this is something that, you know, would be very recognizable and you could relate to very easily. So in the development of the podcast, I wanted to make sure that there was a lot of that emotion of the curling game and the atmosphere of of a curling rink that was was captured. Uh, And then that combined with Brad and and Ryan and the podcast actually talking. And then you hear them actually yelling in the curling game uh, was a a cool, cool dynamic that I wanted to have. So I want to talk about how you developed your podcast, you know, what research did you do in terms of seeing what other podcasts were out there that were kind of like it and how you differentiated yourself? Well, I watched a lot of curling. (laughs) (laughs) That's a given. (laughs) First of all, yeah, um, I watched a ton of curling and I found the moments that I wanted to capture. I don't think there was a ton out there that was particularly similar to this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of podcasts about curling, but I don't know how many really try and tell the same kind of, of story that I feel like was told in, in this podcast. So in other sports podcasts or other curling podcasts, I should say, were they more conversational podcasts or were they kind of documentarian like yours? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were totally conversational. There wasn't a lot of uh, production clips where you're actually taking like, you know, atmosphere and actual like curling calls from commentators and stuff like that. Most of it is talking about, I don't know how to put it, like maybe like more nerdy <laughs> curling <laughs> stuff, talking more about like Kevin Martin's podcast, who is, he was a, a famous curler for Canada. His podcast is, is great. I, I really enjoy that. It's called Inside Curling. I mean, this is one that I, 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 I listen to quite a bit, but it, it's more talking about curling the sport and current events and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, my podcast has nothing to do with current events. It has like shelf life, right? Where it, people could listen to this podcast many years down the road and it would be just as effective as, you know, when they listen to it right when it came out, right? I, I'm telling a story. I'm not trying to keep people up on current events or, or things like that. It's about the story and I'm just telling a cool story. It doesn't really matter, you know, when it happened. Something I want to get into is how did you get and how did you manage to get that game audio? 
Yeah, <laughs> I thought that that would be uh, a difficult process, and I was a little worried because if I didn't get any of that game audio, this podcast would be looking a lot different. <laughs> um, I basically just had to go ahead and email Curling Canada, and all the games are on their YouTube channel, and I said, hey, can I use this these clips? And it, you know, curling's kind of a niche thing, right? So when uh, I think when someone emails saying, hey, we're, I'm going to do a podcast about curling, they're like, yeah. Sure, we love that, right? And it's it's not because it's small; it's just because there's not a ton of you know production around it. There's lots of people who who love curling, but there's not you know a, a ton of stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I just emailed Curling Canada, and they said, "Sure, you can use this clip for sure." And that's how I got it. But I think curling is just like right in that middle zone where there's still lots of, of access to stuff. Um, <laughs> but it, it's not and, and there's still lots of people as well that like it and it's it's just in that that median zone where you have a really good opportunity and, and the resources at your disposal to tell a really good story yeah and podcasting is almost the perfect medium to tell that sort of curling story because there is such a strong community around curling but there's just not a whole lot of coverage it's like podcasting kind of gives it that space where you can tell those very like specific stories and have it appeal and cater to a very enthusiastic community but also you did it in a way that it can appeal to people who just want to get into curling or want to understand what it's about and you make a great entry for it yeah people people think curling's boring (laughs) they 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 don't think that curling is particularly exciting and i mean they're right (laughs) there's not there's not a, a ton of action in curling but if you take the time to think about the sport and learn the the different characters, because they're very easy to access, right? People in curling don't, you know, make the most money in the world, right? Being a professional curler doesn't mean that you're, you're one of the richest people in the world or anything. So, you know, there's lots of access to these players and especially like one of the most underrated things in curling, I think is that you get to actually hear what each player is saying during the game because they're all mic'd up you know if p- players were mic'd up in a hockey game you know people would would be absolutely thrilled about that right mm-hmm. and it's the same kind of thing right because you know they want to hear what the hockey players are saying well the hockey players who are mic'd up are not saying anything genuine they know they're mic'd up the curlers are they it's actually real life <laughs> what they're saying because they're always mic'd up that's right true. They're, they, yeah. they're never they're never don't have a microphone on them so you know, it's kind of like like reality TV if you think about it in a way, because you know what they're saying is more genuine, and they're not just saying it, you know, because there's a microphone on, right? I think to go back to this idea of what is audio great at? Audio is great at telling stories. Audio is great at uh, reflecting emotion and telegraphing emotion, right? So audio can tell you stories and it can make you feel things. And the best podcasts take advantage of and play to those strengths. Podcasting has never been, and I think likely will never be, about pure reach. It's not about getting the absolute biggest numbers. It's about engagement. And it's about people voluntarily spending time with you and the stories that you want to tell. Some of the the most successful podcasts aren't just podcasts, they're communities of people. 
and the podcast is just a place to convene. When Dan said this in our interview, it made me think of something one of our guests said earlier this season. It was during our alumni episode that one of our guests, Taylor Lindsay Knoll, had said that part of the reason why she started her own podcast and loved making podcasts was that it was an opportunity to tell the stories that were important for her to tell. The other guests on that episode, Kyle Moore and Elena Hutchinslau, had echoed that sentiment as well, and I can't help but agree. The reason why I love podcasting is that it's one of the best mediums to tell stories that may have otherwise never been told. Because you can be so specific with your audience and your topic, there's a space to tell unique and often overlooked stories that were not given a place in mainstream and broadcast media. Earlier this episode, Dan mentioned how sometimes finding your niche can be a process of finding the story you are uniquely qualified to tell. Our final feature is a great example of this. Up next, you'll be listening to an interview from Valentina Passos Gestaldo's podcast, The Immigrant, as well as an interview I did with her to talk about the making of her project. As an immigrant herself, Valentina wanted to create a space where she could give other immigrants an opportunity to tell their own stories. This interview, she talks to her sister as a way to illustrate the diversity of immigrant experiences, even from those who come from the same family. Isn't it weird that we never had this conversation before? Yes, that's true. So maybe let's start from the beginning, which is why and when did you decide to move to Canada? Um, so I moved to Canada in 2014. And the, re the, the main reason was just that I was tired of living in Brazil. And I wanted to, to live with, with dad. And I also wanted to, to study and be more focused on school and do well and have more opportunities growing up, I guess. How about you? I know you had different reasons to moving to Canada. So do you mind sharing that with us? Part of the reason I decided to move to Canada was because of you. We always lived together since, you know, I was born. And you moving to Canada inspired me to move to Canada as well. I also thought Canada would be a great place for me to conduct my studies, you know, to go to university, study what I wanted to study, which was media production. And I thought Canada would have better resources and better opportunities for me to grow professionally and also as a person. Those were the main reasons. But how was it for you to move to Canada? I know you had a hard time leaving Brazil, our home country. So I don't know, would you mind sharing that with us? I don't even know to the full extent how that was for you and the implications of that or the feelings that you felt when you decided to move. Well, I actually had decided to move a year prior So 2013, and then mom didn't deal very well with it. She thought I was just <laughs> yeah. acting out and I wasn't just happy with, with like maybe, I don't, not with my friends, but because I wasn't doing well at school, she thought I just wanted to escape from school, which is actually the opposite reason because I was going to Canada to study, but she thought I was running away from like my bad grades or something like that. Um, so my move was harder in the beginning than it was when I actually arrived in Canada. Um, and I think that's so, where we deferred the most because my arrival in Canada was extremely harder than when I left Brazil. And I think for you it was the opposite. Yes, for me it was very hard leaving Brazil just because I was leaving mom and she wasn't happy with it. She wasn't okay with my decision. Yeah, I guess she wasn't at she, all. She, yeah, she was forced to be okay because otherwise she just would 
not talk to me anymore, I guess, because that's the way that she can sometimes be. So she was forced to be okay with something that she wasn't okay. So that was very hard. And then also leaving all of my friends behind and I wasn't going to finish high school with them. So that was also very hard. But, you know, nowadays there's social media, you keep in touch with people. I'm still great friends with my friends from back home. And I think leaving was the hardest part and the process of preparing to leave as opposed to being an immigrant in Canada. I really think your move to Canada prepared my move to Canada because I saw how mom got, you know, very upset. Like, I think she felt betrayed. Like, if I had to describe a word, I would say betrayal because I think she she felt you chose that over her. And me seeing that as the only child, quote unquote, living in Brazil with her, I had a time to prepare and tell her, like, a long time in advance that I wanted to move to Canada. And I never told her that I wanted to. I always told her like I was thinking. And then when I had decided to, then I decided, started telling her, you know, I'm moving to Canada next year. This is our, the things that I'm thinking about. What do you think? And I kind of involved her in the process, which I think she felt more comfortable with. That's interesting because even though you said that you never told her that you were moving, you always told her that you were thinking of moving. You definitely knew that you were moving because you never like prepared to do to go to university there or yeah, that's anything true, because like I that, was right? scared. I think I was more <laughs> scared. Yeah, I never prepared to go to the university in Brazil. Like yeah, so maybe deep down inside my heart I knew. <laughs> well, not even deep down, like it wasn't that deep actually. <laughs> I knew, but I was afraid of her reaction. Yeah. So I was almost like, you know, I was walking on eggshells, like, oh my God, what's gonna happen here? You know, I, I love my mom so much. I don't want to worry about her. And that's what, actually what happened when I moved to Canada. I got very worried about her. You know, is, is she okay? Is she doing okay? What is happening? Like, and I had that constant fear of her being safe, which she's completely yeah, safe. You know, she's an adult. But yeah, I think mm-hmm. you, you do remember. I, I used to be very, like, panicking a lot of the times. Yeah, I remember sometimes if she didn't answer her phone for, like, a day, you'd completely worry and text all of her friends to see mm-hmm. if she, if she was okay if anything happened why wasn't she texting you back yes and it felt so real because for so long I thought her being sad was my fault somehow because I left her you know but I actually didn't leave her I didn't leave anyone I just decided to do something that was best for me and I think you did the same thing yeah so you moved from Brazil to Canada it was hard leaving Brazil but what was your first impression living in Canada. What did you think about the country, the people, your experience with your arrival in Canada? Was it hard, easy? I know we had the very, very, very different experiences and opinions regarding our arrivals. Uh, Yeah, so I arrived in Canada a few months before school started. So I had some time to just have a mini vacation, you could say that, and just get to know my house, the neighborhood, some of the people, the friends that our family had um and then I was there for the first day of school in the new year so I think that's very important because I know you came in the middle of the semester I think so that is already harder well I arrived in what in the winter which was very a very drastic change from moving you know from Brazil during the summer and I also arrived in the middle of grade 11 you know half semester already so that was like a an abrupt change rather than yeah, starting not, from day one, which is a good thing. Yeah. And then the people already know each other. You already know the people in the class that you're taking and things like yeah. that. 
But anyway, so then I arrived and then I don't remember it being hard. I remember liking it because it was warm weather. I was just going to all of the places that I wanted to go. I was getting things for my room because my room didn't have anything, like had only a bed. So we went to Ikea and we bought things and then... Ikea is like the best place in Canada. I love Ikea. (laughs) It's a Swedish um, company that sells very, very cheap furniture. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that you have to build yourself. That's the only thing. But it's so fun. Yeah, it is fun. It, it is a fun like activity. So I was just busy doing all, all those things and getting my room ready. So I don't remember being hard at all. And then first day of school, I think I went with my dad and we talked to the to the principal. And then, yeah, then I, I started school. That's fun because in my opinion, like seeing you, I would say actually the same thing. Like me seeing you in Canada, like going to school, for me, you were adapting very well, very easily, you know, like didn't have any hard, hard moments in Canada or adapting, making friends, speaking the language. So yeah, I guess that's a a big part. And also we came to Canada a few times before we moved because dad lived here since we're 11, 12. So we came to visit, but I remember I never attempted myself to speak the language and you were always the one speaking for us both so <laughs> I guess you had a, an easier time speaking the language than I I had at the beginning yeah but I also think part of the reason I had a, like a smooth transition I'd say is because I was moving to Canada to study and to do well and get good grades so I was very focused on my studies I had my friends from Brazil it wasn't the end of the world if I didn't make any new friends obviously I met some people I had people that I talked to in class and did assignments with and if I needed help my my teachers like all helped me like with the language barrier I'd say in the beginning they'd give me extra time if I wanted they basically helped me a lot and because I went to a very 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 small school I think that also was another important part of it because there were very few people in my school. It was the neighborhood school because in Canada, at least in Ontario, uh, you go to school in the school that's that's the closest to your house. Yeah. So that I went to a school that was two blocks away from my house. So I literally walked there and then walked back and it was a five minute walk. So that helped me a lot. And unfortunately, when when you moved, you didn't have that because the school had closed. Yeah, the school that you were attending merged with the school that I attended. So it actually like two schools became one, which was something much bigger, much more like, you know, people. It was very hard for me. But what was your impression of my adaptation to Canada? Because you moved to Canada, I was in Brazil. So I only saw you when I came to visit. But you were living here when I moved. So you got to experience firsthand my transition. So what was your impression of my transition to Canada? It was very tough. That it was very hard. Can you explain that? That you miss your friends from back home, for sure, a lot more than I did. That the classes were were not difficult, but because you couldn't understand the language, it was difficult. And that you couldn't do as well as you thought you could, mostly because of this barrier. Yes. <laughs> At the beginning, it was extremely hard. And I think I, I'm very grateful for the teachers that I had that motivated me and pushed me forward to not be afraid of speaking the language and making mistakes, you know? Yeah. And I think that because it was so hard for you, like, I mean, I don't think it was my impression. I think it was hard for you. Yeah. It was hard for me. Like I could see that it was hard. And I think that one thing led to another and then it just became really, really hard. What was like a moment that you remember that was 
hard for me. I don't remember like one moment and I don't even know if it was the first year that you were in Canada or the second year that you were in Canada. But within the the, the first months, I don't know. I remember you sleeping a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's one thing that I remember that you slept a lot. Yeah. And actually, eventually I was diagnosed like with depression and you know, that was like a very hard thing for me. I actually like my first ones in Canada. I remember me crying a lot. I used to cry every single day. It was like so hard. And I remember I was very ill mentally. And I remember like talking to you and then telling you that I didn't want to leave anymore. And then you're telling me like, it's okay, we're going to face this together. We're going to figure out. And you're very supportive of me. And having that support for me was very important, I, especially because I think any change is hard. And I really felt alone. Like, even though I had a family, even though I had you and dad, you know, and, and Laura and Mariana, like everyone giving me support, I really felt isolated because I wanted to express my feelings in English. I wasn't able to. There were so many issues that led to my mental state to be what it was at that time. And it took me such a long time to get over that. And I think if I had, you know, maybe a community of immigrants that I could relate to, Maybe if I had other people who were going through the same thing that I was going through, it would be a little bit easier for me than it was. But you're right, it was it was very tough. Yeah, and I think it all started just because of this like language barrier, like this tiny, tiny, tiny part of it. And then one Which thing is to a tiny thing. Another. It's a tiny thing, but it it's is also a, ti- a huge a ti- thing, right? Yeah, but it is a tiny thing compared to all of the struggles that one goes through when they move. But I couldn't speak. And for me as an extrovert. It was hard because I wanted to communicate. And I think I express myself the best when I communicate. I couldn't do that. And also, like, Canada is a place where people are more closed off. Like, they're not as open and, you know, warm as Brazilians are. So for me, that was a big shock. Like, couldn't hug people in the way I used to. I was going to say that there was a shock between the life that you had in Brazil and then the life that you had in Canada in terms of friendships. Like you had a million friends in Brazil and you talked to everyone and were very like social. And then in Canada, you almost couldn't be that person. I literally couldn't. <laughs> and I think that was that was one of the reasons that led me to my mental breakdown was because I didn't know who I was anymore. You know, like that person who that I was in Brazil couldn't be replicated in Canada and if I couldn't be that then who was I like who is this person living in Canada and what can I do to fit in and for a long time I had this struggle with myself thinking like how should I speak how should I talk and I still continue to not know but now I'm way more secure and more comfortable with myself and I just wish I had more support and it wasn't because the family didn't give me support because you you all gave me a lot of support, but it was because I wish I had support from other sources, you know. Or even if you had known any other immigrants that were also just starting mm-hmm. in Canada, especially in Dundas, the city that we lived. Yeah, which is such a small city, and I was the only immigrant in my high school. So again, you know, I really felt like and like isolated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe if you had if you had gone to Toronto to a school there, maybe you would have had a completely different experience because the immigrant population is very high over there. Yeah, absolutely. I think I would. I would have had a different experience in Toronto than I had in Dundas, Ontario. <laughs> So the story behind the immigrant started a few years ago. I think I was in my third year of, year of university and I was talking to my aunt about immigration uh, in Canada. So we're both immigrants who come from Brazil and 
it was such an interesting conversation because we're talking about how there isn't such thing as an immigrant experience. When we talk about immigration, we talk about life stories. Uh, it isn't about a single narrow-minded perspective. It is a very complex thing. So me and her started talking about it and it started like looking around in the media to see how immigration and immigrants were portrayed. And it was a very single-minded perspective. And I started thinking about why there isn't any project or storytelling project in the media that talks about representation surrounding immigration in Canada. And I was like, oh my God, I need to do something about it. <laughs> so basically this the idea started there where I wanted to explore what it, what it means to be an immigrant in Canada, but I didn't want it to do it in the way some people do it, which is like you go and you interview people and stuff and, you know, we just get that perspective. I wanted to start a movement. I wanted to give immigrants the agency so they could tell their stories in the way they want other people to hear it. I want immigrants to start telling their stories in the way they want other people to hear it because it's so meaningful when we're able to tell our stories in in ways that makes ourselves proud. Like it's so incredible when I first was able to tell my story and think with me like, oh my God, wow, I've been through so much. I'm actually proud of myself, proud of being an immigrant. And I think the idea of the immigrant is surrounding this whole concept of being a proud immigrant, of being able to tell your story in meaningful ways, in ways that you want other people to hear it and, you know, show the complexity of what immigration really means. Because immigration at the end of the day is a very complex thing and we shouldn't like simplify it. We should actually embrace the complexity of immigration. So when people think about immigration in Canada, they really think about, and I actually did this kind of like a research around it. I asked a lot of Canadians what they think of immigration um, and immigrants in Canada. And a lot of them said, oh, multiculturalism, diversity. And it was, the, the answers were all the same. But when I asked immigrants what they think of immigration in Canada and about their experience, the questions were so different. Like some people say, you know, oh, it was a change in my life, happiness, fear, diversity, opportunities, losses. So you could see the complexity of these answers uh, versus the ideal, um, what people think of immigration in Canada. So when we actually put ourselves in a position where we're proud of telling our stories, we're also able to listen to other stories better. So how everything started was um, I had this idea that I wanted to create this project where I gave agency to immigrants, but I didn't know how I was going to do that. And then podcasts appeared in my life as a, as a format, as a medium in which I could express and have honest and vulnerable conversations with people. But the beginning of this podcast, it was, it started with this aim, this goal of letting other people hear what immigration actually is and the complexity of immigration and the stories that surround immigration. And then now where it's going, it's a very different process. The, the mindset and the purpose of the project is the same, but now it's more focused on the immigrants itself because what I've realized over the years working with immigrants there's always this drive to not have an accent, to fully be immersed in the Canadian culture, to not be seen as foreign as an immigrant. And this 
it's almost like not wanting to be seen as yourself because there's no way we're going to hide our origins. There's no way I'm going to hide my accent. You're going to hear my accent. So I shouldn't be ashamed of it. I shouldn't, I shouldn't fear it. And I understand why people fear it because there's so much discrimination against immigrants and against our accents in the way sometimes we dress and the way sometimes we move our hands and do gestures and so many things, you know. So I started thinking about the project and how it started and how it's going now. And now it's much more about like trying to create a community of immigrants where we have this movement where we're proud of being immigrants. I am proud of my accent. I have an accent and I'm not, I'm not going to deny it. A big life-changing moment for me and for some people was when we stopped saying sorry. Because if I'm saying sorry, it means that I did something wrong. And when we have accents and we come from a different culture and a different language, this is going to happen. And this happened so many times where I was constantly apologizing myself at the beginning. But I shouldn't. And no immigrant should. So it's much more about trying to create a community of immigrants where we feel proud of our identities and proud of who we are, rather than just trying to show other people what the Canadian uh, immigration experience is. It's much more about now connecting with the immigrants and building a community through storytelling and through owning our identities. Valentina's podcast is a really strong example of how someone's lived experience can help inform and inspire work that is compelling to listen to. What Valentina is uniquely qualified to do in this case is to help tell the stories of those who may not necessarily have the exact same experience as her, but have ones that she can resonate and connect with. And because of that, she has an advantage when it comes to informing the editorial process involved with creating such a nuanced project like this. Since producing her podcast, Valentina has taken her project over to the Transmedia Zone, which is a storytelling incubator at X University. She is currently in the process of transforming it into a transmedia project that not only includes a podcast, but also video, photo ops, and further and more intimate interviews with other immigrants. The project has taken on a slow content treatment so that it better reflects the mission of Valentina's project to be an incubator for community and connection. If you want to follow along with the further iterations of The Immigrant, you can follow her Instagram at valgastaldo. That's at V-A-L-G-A-L-D-O, where she'll be starting off the project soon by sharing her own immigration story and probably any updates on the project. If you want more information on anything mentioned in this episode, you can likely find some resources and relevant links in our show notes. Before I sign off, I want to give a big thank you to Dan Meisner for lending his expertise for this episode, as well as to Valentina, Thomas, and Haley for giving their permission to feature their projects and for taking the time to contribute their voices to this episode. Thanks for joining me. I'm Sam McNulty, your podcast producer and host. And this has been another episode of Bounced. Thank you for your cooperation.